Vince and I have had an amazing relationship for many years. Many, many years. And it all began with WrestleMania number four in Atlantic City. Ladies and gentlemen, the President-elect of the United States, Donald John Trump. Believe it or not, we're back for episode number 12, the show that will never die. I am your co-host, JP John Paz from the two-man power trip of wrestling. And of course, my co-host, Mr. Trump Mania himself from the podcast, of course, from the books, of course, Mr. Lavi Margolin. Lavi, how are you doing today, sir? I'm doing good until uh, everyone in Georgia and Michigan gives up the ghost. You know, we're going to keep it going. Yes, <laughs> yes. And of course, we have a very, very special guest today. He's a former a rare U.S. editor. He was Rand Paul's campaign manager and, of course, a, a very good author who also wrote Glenn Kane Jacobs' book. And he's Lasertron's biggest fan, Mr. Jack Hunter. Jack, how you doing today, sir? Good to be with you guys. Glad to be here. Very cool to get you on, and I know Lavi was dying to get you on. He's got a bunch of questions for you. So really, I think what we should just establish first is kind of tell us about you and your history in politics, because I don't know if a lot of people realize, but you got quite a, a resume. Well, I appreciate you saying that. Let's see, where do we even start? I, you know, my background was in radio, uh, doing political commentary and rock radio, as strange as that sounds, which I parlayed into talk radio in my home of Charleston, South Carolina. Um, I was one of the few at the time in 2008 Ron Paul champions, if you will, in conservative media, and that led to me working for his 2012 presidential campaign and his son, Senator Rand Paul, who many will know, and opinion shall vary, and uh, I'm sure people <laughs> of different political persuasions listen to this program. Um, I co-authored his first book, The Tea Party Goes to Washington, with him. I worked in his office. It was his new media director. Um, and yeah, I come out of that movement. I'm a libertarian conservative. I champion and advocate for libertarian conservative ideas. But more important than any of that nonsense, I am a lifelong diehard wrestling nut. And there are so many correlations and similarities between the wacky world of professional wrestling and the even wackier world of professional politics that it's enough to make your head spin. I love it. Now, it's so cool to kind of mix both worlds, especially on this show, which we do so well. So, Lavi, I want to kind of open it up to you because I know you had some dying dear questions for Jack. Sure. So first, I'd love to talk about wrestling. Um, I have the feeling that you have a, a certain territory or um, promotion that uh, hooked you and, and got you passionate about the business. Well, you can tell from my accent, I'm from Brooklyn, New York, um, originally. <laughs> That's obviously a joke. My uh, accent, you know, is definitely Southern. Like I said, Charleston, South Carolina. And you could have guessed, you know, grew, I'm an 80s kid, Jim Crockett promotions. 
I, and we'll get to it later. I watch most modern wrestling and love it. And there will never be any wrestling in my heart better till the day I die than what happened in the 1980s with Magnum TA and Dusty Rhodes and the Rock and Roll Express and all, all that. The Four Horsemen, Ric Flair is my favorite. Yes, that is that is where my heart is when it comes to professional, professional wrestling and always will be. And uh, when did politics get on your radar? In my late teens, um, my my mother and father, who are not overtly political or very political, my mom, uh, when Rush Limbaugh was sort of a new thing on talk radio, she just kind of wanted to listen to something different. It was between my junior and senior years in high school, and I, I liked that. And I took it further and obviously got into journalism and broadcast and um, you know, working for, for politicians at some point, you know, I'm a political journalist now. Um, you know, I, I wrestling was first. I've liked that since I was single digits. And I guess the end of my uh, teens, I got into interested in politics and parlayed that into a way to make a living as well. So I'm going to jump around a little bit and I apologize sure. for that. I was doing uh, some more research today. So I found uh, different tidbits that I thought would be um, helpful to ask you. So we'll kind of jump through different time periods. Okay. Um, so I'm sure uh, when Linda McMahon was having her first and second run for Senate that it was on your radar. So in looking at the local papers at the time or or in the archives, actually, rec more recently in researching for the book and then the revised book, sometimes people didn't know what to make of Linda McMahon. Um, I had seen some articles where she was positioned as a Tea Party Republican. Mm -hmm. And I had seen some other pieces where they labeled her a liberal wrestling promoter because she had a mixed contribution history to different candidates. It wasn't certain whether she had a certain core political idealism. What do you think? Where did she really stand? My take, and it was funny, I was sort of torn in the primaries, the Republican primaries, because Peter Schiff was also in that, who is a libertarian Republican, which is my wheelhouse. And I was like, man, I'm a wrestling fan, so you got Linda McMahon, you got to root for her, but here's the guy I actually agree with on more things. So um, when it comes to Linda and where she's coming from, I mean, it's no secret that her husband's a Republican. They are business people. Um, you know, they built that from the, from the, not the ground up because, you know, of course it was Vince Sr. and Jess McMahon and all that, but they built it and what it became through Hulkamania and what it became today and this global phenomenon. And, you know, a lot of wrestling fans know that Linda McMahon had a lot to do with that. I think it's fair to say that Vince and Lin Linda McMahon, well, we're just talking about Linda McMahon right now, is, is a fairly just general, common, standard Republican. So like if I'm a libertarian Republican who is anti-war and I want to end the drug war and I think criminal justice reform is something we need to do, those might be on her plate, but I don't know that that's what drives her like it would uh, – people of my persuasion on the right. Um, nor do I think she is sort of what they call a neoconservative, which would be your George W. Bush, Dick Cheney, today it would be Tom Cotton, Lindsey Graham, people whose priority is sort of an aggressive foreign policy and really don't care about civil liberties, especially when it comes to things like torture and other things America's not supposed to do. I don't think Linda McNeon's that either. That's a different kind of ideologue within the Republican Party. I think she's like Mitt Romney, if that makes any sense. She's just, okay, I'm a Republican. What does that mean now? I want low taxes. I want less regulation for businesses. I think that's probably where she's coming from. And I think she probably would have been a very good senator. Um, assuming, you know, uh, Donald Trump is on the way out, uh, where do you think uh, Linda will land next? That's a very good question. Obviously, she was the head of the Small Business Administration. And uh, a little, little funny side note here, uh, a fellow wrestling fan and journalist at Rare 
when that was still when I was still editor there in Washington D.C. On the day that she was sworn in, we rushed up there to see if we could meet Triple H or Stephanie, because <laughs> they were there, <laughs> and we missed them by like five minutes. I was so upset. But um, I, I, you know, she did the pack at, during the election, raising money for Trump. I don't know, and that that question is largely contingent upon. What is Trump in our politics after this? He's not going anywhere. He's going to be on his Twitter. He's going to be on Fox or the Trump Network or whatever they decide. I don't know that there's a place for her within that, but there could be still within the Republican Party. Um, you know, she got high marks for her time at the Small Business Administration from everything I've seen. Um, so I don't know the answer to that, but there's probably more doors open for her now than ever in one sense. And also there are you know, forces within the Republican Party with Trump out of the way that want a lot of these Trump people or Trump associated people to go away. So she might be facing some of that as well. I think as long as she's willing to open up her pocketbook, they'll find a place for her. It's funny how um, that works. I really agree. I think she did really well with the SBA in terms of promising to travel to all the different offices, and she did it, and it seemed to be going um, going pretty well. But she had aspirations for more. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I you know, f- from everything I've heard from people who have small businesses and had to deal with that in any the SBA in any capacity, that she did a great job. That's one of the things I like about Trump is that I think he has been good for American businesses, and that's good. So I wanted to get into a topic that's um, you know a little bit heavier and um, certainly more sensitive. But um, you know, some of us that haven't studied history or or are Northerners, we don't understand necessarily some aspects of of Southern culture and sort of what it what it means to many people down south. I guess is this, is this right about now. the Godwins? Is that where we're going? Is it? Uh, it might include actually a, a little bit. <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, <laughs> especially related to their outfits at times. So um, certainly we've had a um, cancel culture moment in terms of the uh, the stars and bars, the rebel flag. What sort of like, what is the context of it? What does it mean to Southerners? Well, it means different things at different times. And let's go ahead and get into this a little bit. I started my career, um, like I said, on rock radio down here in Charleston, South Carolina, um, giving political commentary. And I had a a uh, a character, a wrestling character in my mind that wore a Confederate flag wrestling Lucha Libre mask and would appear at radio appearances. Uh, I judged mud wrestling, jello wrestling, um, bikini contests, and would give political commentary wearing that Confederate flag mask. And that's something that I now regret and have apologized for. And it leads to your question, how do people view that? In my mind at the time, and when I was watching the Dukes of Hazard growing up and the fabulous Freebirds and what they did and the Southern Boys and, you know, and WCW and all that, I knew that there was racial problems, that it was a racist symbol to many people. But I thought overall it was a symbol of the South, something you should be proud of, but it was problematic. And I think that is a woefully naive way to look at that symbol now when you consider that for black Americans, black South Carolinians in my state, it was a symbol of terrorism. I mean, their grandfathers were terrorized in the middle of the night by the Ku Klux Klan by people holding that flag. And that's something I regret. But people like the fabulous Freebirds, you're asking how Southerners view it. I don't think most people watching Michael Hayes and Buddy Roberts and Terry Gordy come out there were thinking about 
race. I think they were thinking about these are Leonard Skinner style wrestlers and Leonard Skinner uses his flag too. I think when we were watching the Dukes of Hazard of Children, I think many black and white children love that show and black children might have watched it in a different way than white children. But I don't think anybody thought Bo and Luke Duke were hateful, if you catch my drift. So there's a larger context, a cultural context in which that flag has existed in more non-malicious, at least to white Americans, not, not non-malicious circumstances or context. But you cannot ignore white, black, brown, I don't care what you are, that millions of Americans suffered at the hands of terrorists under that flag. And I'm talking about slave owners. I'm talking about the Reconstruction era. I'm talking about the segregation era and Jim Crow. People, white people who wanted to keep people who do not look like, look like them under their thumb, oppress their voting rights, oppress their basic humanity using that flag. So I, I think people, I don't, See, I haven't seen Michael Hayes say a lot about this. I don't, you know, the Southern boys or whatever. I don't think any of them were being malicious and I wasn't trying to be malicious, but that's what it is. And we need to sort of learn and move forward and, and not do those things anymore. I appreciate that. Thank you. And when I came across some, um, uh, you know, those those images um, from your past, my first thought was uh, Dixie Dynamite from the Armstrong family from the um, sure. SMW ter territory. Was that part of the inspiration? No, but you know what was? Um, well, you know, I got that flag, that flag, that mask that has a flag on it from High Spots. Many people are familiar with that that uh, place in in. North Carolina, and it was already created because some indie wrestler had that gimmick. I was like, okay, well, I'm a radio guy. I took my name from a popular black conservative host at the time named Ken Hamblin in the 90s, and I was like, well, he's the black Avenger. I'll, I'll be the Southern Avenger, and it was that, but where I got it more than anything besides that mask being available, do you remember when the Freebirds had the feud with the Road Warriors, and they painted the flag on their face? Do you, do oh, you yeah. remember? Well, that was world yep. class, right? Do I have that right? Um, that's where I got it from. I'm like, well, yeah, that's some, something like that. And it led to that mask. But that, that was the idea. That tells you the, the origin of the name and the, the photos you saw. Were you a, um, an SMW tape trader or did you get it in your local market or was that something off your radar? I, that was off my radar, and I was talking to a friend while watching TakeOver last night. So one of the things on my to-do list is to go through and watch SMW on the WWE Network chronologically. There was a time my last year or two in high school, um, probably about two, three, four years, where I did not watch wrestling as much. So I watched it since I was about eight or ten. There was that period in there, and then with the NWO stuff, I picked back up and had it you know, haven't put it down since. So that was sort of during that era. I knew Jim Cornette was doing something. I didn't know at the time that Rick Rubin was bankrolling it, who was my favorite music producer of all time to this day, uh, which was really cool. But it's definitely something I want to go back and watch and, you know, hell, listening to Cornette's podcast and some of the old, you know, Mid-Atlantic and Jim Crockett, maybe some of the Brian Last stuff. You learn about things you never knew about your, your favorite era. And of course, I love Southern wrestling. Great. Yeah, I'm, I'm a big uh, Brian Last guy as well. Um, so something else that I came across was the Rand Man. Um, what, the hell, what is that? <laughs> well, <laughs> that was um, uh, it looked like Rand Paul's campaign, and um, it was compared to professional wrestling, where it's a um, a commercial where it starts out like Sunday, 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 and he's he's like a professional wrestler, and then it's showing. I remember that. I keep going. I remember that now. I forgot about that. Yeah. So I wasn't sure if you were the one that conceptualized that idea. 
No, two thoughts on that. That was sent to me like, hey, Jack, check this out. This is up your alley. And of course it was. A funnier story I don't think I've shared with anybody publicly. Do you remember WC uh, Hulk Hogan's WCW, what was it, American Made, his original theme before mm -hmm. the NWO? Yep. So the guy that wrote that lives in Kentucky, was a huge Rand Paul supporter, and sent the campaign, me specifically, and copied some other people. He was like, Rand could use this with my permission. And like Rand's like, what is this? Who Hulk? What? Like he doesn't know about professional wrestling except for Glenn Jacobs. <laughs> but this guy that wrote the song was like, this is you know the campaign can use the song American Made for Rand and was really jazzed about it. But of course that didn't happen. I thought that was funny. <laughs> that reminds me. Um, did you ever see the clips of uh, Mitt Romney in the Lucha Libre costume? Yes, that's <laughs> that's pretty funny. Yeah, that, that was something else. That was as good as who, his Who Let the Dogs Out clip. If anybody has seen that. So jumping back into politics, sort of what is the advantage of a, um, a Mitt Romney or a Lisa Murkowski? There's usually there's like, I would say three or four senators where it seems that they're always, not always, but that they're almost always going to kind of like jump to the, um, to the liberal side. Uh, and um, at the last moment, they sort of pull back and, and go back to the Republican side. Is there an advantage to them to sort of like be on the fence, but then ultimately support their own party? Well, as Susan Collins or Lisa Murkowski, the states they're in are fairly purple and, you know, they could lose their seats at any time. They're not deep red states like South Carolina, where I'm at, or Alabama or something like that. Uh, Mitt Romney, you know, a lot of Mormons do not like this president, and I respect the reason why. These are devout people. They don't like the way he goes about things. And so he can get away thing with things politically, being a senator from Utah, that he couldn't if he was a senator from South Carolina or something like that. Mitt Romney, I think, is a good man. I did not vote for him for president and probably never would. I think he's a political chameleon at the same time. I think he cares about his family and his kids. But, you know, I voted. I lived in Boston from 93 to 96. Boy, did I see a lot of good ECW stuff during that time being in that area. I remember voting for Mitt Romney when I was barely out of my teens. I might have been still 19 and 94 for senator when he ran against Ted Kennedy, and he was telling everybody he was pro-choice and was rejecting Ronald Reagan because Kennedy was trying to wrap Ronald Reagan around him. He said, I don't do that. Then he runs for president later. Oh, I'm a Reaganite. I'm pro-life, blah, 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 blah. Uh, then he sits down for dinner with Trump. Can I get this to work? That doesn't work out. Now he's anti-Trump. I think you see a pattern. He's willing to do whatever it takes to get himself ahead politically. I don't think principle has much to do with it when it comes to Mitt Romney. When do you think um, politics really merged with wrestling or has it always been intertwined? Well, I mean, you know, wrestling is a popular form of entertainment. Uh, I don't know. Are you familiar with Lee Atwater, who was sort of the Reagan and George H.W. Bush strategist? Um, yes. So I completely missed it in the first book. And then the second book, um, he's sort of like he helps to launch the beginning of the story. And I had wished I had known earlier about him. Yes, and he had his own, you know, cross to bear at the end of his life. He was responsible for the awful and racist Willie Horton ads during the Dukakis George H.W. Bush campaign, which were horrible. Just Google Willie Horton if you want to learn about that. But as far as professional wrestling, he was a huge fan. He would go to the shows. He would take friends to the shows. And this is public, but I heard it more specifically from a, a somebody who works in libertarian politics and used to be part of the RNC back in the 80s um, here in D.C., um, he said that Lee Atwater, he remembers being a young man getting the Republican politics, and Lee Atwater told him in a group, 
He said, there's two things you need to know to understand politics, professional wrestling and People magazine. He said, if you get those two things, that's all you need to know about politics. And I, I tend to agree with him to this day. I um I heard he had a big John Stud picture behind his desk, <laughs> <laughs> and he was inspired by a speech that he, he remembered Big John Stud as saying of talking about sort of the disaffected middle class. Although it'd be very hard to imagine Big John Stud making a speech like that. I don't know. He was quite the orator. Big John Stud was, uh, but but yeah, things like that. I mean, Lee Atwater was so influential. He was a huge wrestling fan. We could go back to Jimmy Carter and his mother, who was obsessed with Mister Wrestling Number Two. And I'm sure many of your listeners, and you two probably know the story about they tried to invite Wrestling Two to to the inauguration, but he wouldn't remove his mask. And the Secret Service were like, "That's not going to happen." So they had a private meeting with Jimmy Carter's mother and Mr. Wrestling Number Two. You can find those pictures on Google. And I'm sure if you go back further and further, you know, wrestling is not as old as politics, um, or I guess it is if you want to go back to Greco-Roman days. I don't know how you would measure that, but in the United States, I think they've pretty much always been intertwined. Abraham Lincoln was a wrestler, wasn't he? Yeah. Um, and Linda McMahon had claimed that he was uh, more of a, of a touring wrestler, <laughs> which is hard <laughs> to prove, uh, rather than taking the stretch from the amateur or, or shoot style. <laughs> and here we are with the WWE Hall of Famer president. Which is just this. That's where I mean, you know, I think Lavi, you're not the first person. I'm not the first person. Jim Ross wrote about this at Fox News. So many parallels between professional wrestling and the current administration and what's gone down over the last four years. So my next questions sort of jump back to modern times before um, kind of going back a little bit, but it's more of um, a philosophy um, having being in politics and, and uh, having a, a better understanding of politics. I feel like, you know, a lot of people come to politics with a sort of very core values or interest in, in achieving certain results. So do you think there's ever a need to bend reality to meet one's goals? I think that's a big part of all of this. So the reason I'm involved in politics is because I care about a certain type of libertarian principles, and there are very small select few of people in Washington, D.C. who are there for that reason. Rand Paul is one. Thomas Massey, who's a congressman from Kentucky, is one. Justin Amash, who left the Republican Party for the Libertarian Party, is one. Nancy Mace, my congresswoman from my home district in Charleston, South Carolina, who was just elected, the friend of mine, is one. Um, so there are a few. They're there because they won't, don't want the United States into any more wars. They want to lower taxes. They want to get better regulation. They want people to have more money in their, their paychecks. They want to have criminal justice reform where people aren't locked up for a gazillion years because of some arbitrary mandatory minimum law for nonviolent drug offense. Things like that. That's why they are there. I know these people. Now, to what you just said. The vast majority of politicians are there because they want power. They like that station in life. And yes, they're going to do or say whatever it takes to maintain that position. And that comes that's where wrestling comes into this. Most people vote for a candidate for president because they like them or they don't like them. Yes, they're worried about the economy. Yes, they're worried about education for their children and health care and other things. But at the end of the day, many people will vote against policies they agree with or vice versa because they like the person. This election happened not because anybody liked John Joe Biden. He's all right. Whatever. It could have been a broomstick. 
This election was turned on, do you like Donald Trump or do you loathe Donald Trump? There's not a lot of daylight between those positions for millions of Americans. And Trump did a lot of things in his four years that most Republicans prior wouldn't do, and the people still voted for him anyways, and vice versa. It didn't have anything to do with those policies. It had to do, do you like this man? Do you hate this man? Um, you know, Trump derangement syndrome, some people get mad when you hear that, and it exists on the right and the left. It's for people who just go wacky when they see Trump or hear him and are so mad they can't see straight, and for the people who just worship this man to a ridiculous degree. They're not looking at policy or ideas or what's better for them. There are business people who were hurt by Trump's tariffs who still voted for him just because they liked him. That's Hulk Hogan. That's The Rock. That's Ric Flair. That's John Cena. That's the hero or the villain that everybody loves or hates. And it's above the ideas and the policies and how you're governed. It's wrestling. And I think a lot of people have, you know, observed this, the same things. This is not anything new coming from Jack Hunter, but it is a thing and it is how we operate. And there are a lot of people that think this thing that we love called professional wrestling is stupid who behave according to the rules of professional wrestling as we all understand them. So I have um, a couple of theories um, that I'd love to run by you in terms of Trump's uh, election. Um, I was going to say the first time, but, you know, becoming becoming the president, of course. Um, right. So one of the things that I feel was that he was very good at sort of finding single issue voters. Right. Um, especially on fringe issues that a lot of mainstream um politicians wouldn't support or would be afraid to be all in on and just kind of letting them know either directly or indirectly that he was fine with it so that if you're so passionate about a particular issue that you're sort of ready to be like okay you know i can look i can put the other things aside because this issue is so important to me so one of the things that's certainly gained momentum over the years is anti-vaccination or anti-vaxxers um if i'm saying that correctly so like at a certain point he was talking about um uh an employee of his that had a, a, a wonderful young boy who was doing fine and he got vaccinated and then he had all these developmental issues so sort of like talking to that audience without having to specifically be in on an issue and another one would be the last um couple of presidents were um not anti-Israel, certainly, because, um, you know, the relations were good, but they were sort of admonish Israel in terms of being more hawkish, in terms of um, building in, in disputed territory and so on. And he was very early on sort of like all in on on something like, like Israel. Um, so I feel like he was able to gather these voters where they might not um, agree even together on issues. But if you were to gather these disparate issues and find people that are extremely passionate about those, you sort of have this momentum that you can carry through. So I'll stop at that point and get your thoughts on that before going to the second. I don't think I've seen a politician in my lifetime, with the possible exception of Reagan, who understood the audience before him and, and what to say to them and what to get them going better than Donald Trump. He gets it. The reason he likes doing these big rallies is because, you know, he's sort of an egomaniac, sort of, is probably not necessary there, and he likes the adulation. But he gets people at a gut level. It's retail politics. Bill Clinton had it. Obama had it. Ronald Reagan had it. But Trump has it in a way, um, you know, I'm trying to think of what, what the source is. Right? Oh, it's uh, Tim Carney wrote a book. He's a, a libertarian conservative journalist called Alienated America. 
where you visited these diners in Western Pennsylvania and you sort of the forgotten white working class that voted for Trump. And over and over, he'd hear the same thing. He talks like us. That's what people would say. He talks like us. He's not a BSer. So to your point, whether the issue is Israel or vaccinations or immigration, good God, professional wrestling, how long have we been demonizing the foreigner? Well, we did it in, with this administration, too, to what I think is a terrible degree, one of my least favorite parts about President Trump, but it happened. He knows how to target these different issues and speak to people, but I would still say what I said before, it's less about the issue and more about the man. People really hate this guy or they really love this guy. And he knows it. He knows how to use it both ways, whether it's tweaking the left or inspiring the right. So the other issue that I have in mind, actually, I think it began, I mean, I'm sure it was a long before it, but sort of on my radar initially with Jesse Ventura. So I had read a, um, a book by a political scientist or, or professor who really analyzed sort of, um, you know, the, the polls and, you know, everything that went on in Minnesota and, you know, really felt like it begot Trump, especially when Trump met with Ventura after he won to sort of learn about it. And this professor termed it the dude vote, sort of finding that disaffected voter young who may have been disengaged uh, from the political process and then rallying them to, to vote and get involved. But I feel it involves one more step, which is actually kind of seems like it wouldn't make sense at first, but it does to me, and I'm not sure if it would to you at all. I think Bernie Sanders first found these people during the 2016 election where you found people that were on the fringe that hadn't voted before, that weren't interested in the political process. But then when Sanders didn't carry over to be the Democratic nominee, they looked for the outsider vote, the, the um, candidate that would bring chaos that was new to Washington, and they supported Trump. I think not only are you right, but I'm going to go into further detail because this is actually similar to something I'm working on right now. Let's go back a little bit further. Yes, Jesse Ventura. But as far as presidential politics, you know, I'm a Ron Paul guy. The reason I'm a Ron Paul guy is because in 2008, he ran for president. I knew who he was, thought he'd be a blip on the radar. Nobody'd pay attention. And lo and behold, thousands of bros, if you will, young people, People who were looking for something different, many were apathetic about politics, some were conservative, some were liberal, became more libertarian. They were showing up at places like Berkeley, California, to see this conservative Republican speak who's running for president. And then he would turn around and go speak at Liberty University in front of a packed house. That happened again in 2012. That's a different sort of thing. Bernie Sanders, and Ron Paul was the oldest guy in the Republican field. He's no great orator. He just had ideas they'd never heard before. Bernie Sanders is not a great speaker, but he's got radical ideas and that energized people. What these people wanted was something different. They did not want the same old, same old. The same thing you're seeing happening in the Republican Party with Trump, where they rejected Jeb Bush, even my old former boss, Rand Paul. They rejected everybody strongly in favor of Trump because he was a disruptor. The Bernie bros in the Democratic Party wanted a disruptor. They still want a disruptor, and Joe Biden won. But a lot of them are not happy about it. That movement's going to grow within the Democratic Party. These are the people that listen to Joe Rogan. These are the people that could be fans of Bernie Sanders or Ron Paul or some other sort of anti-establishment figure in any cycle. I think, as a libertarian, if you can marry that base of Trump voters to these people who are like, well, I might like not like Trump, but I don't like Joe Biden's and Jeb Bush's and Hillary Clinton's and John McCain's that they don't want any more establishment figures. If you can marry those two groups, 
And, you know, uh, Trump got a, a lot more of the Hispanic vote this time around and about 2% more of the black vote. If you could do more on all those fronts, you could have a new coalition in America that's not hard right or hard left or even hard centrist. It's hard. We're tired of business as usual and want something different. I have a lot of hope for that. I'd like to see a libertarian bent to that. And I think that the with demographics, younger people are not as invested in the culture war as their, their parents are, at least in different ways. I think we could have a brighter, better future, get rid of some of the terrible ways we talk about immigrants, some of the authoritarian tendencies you see in Donald Trump and you were going to see in Joe Biden, and I think even worse, Kamala Harris. Get away from some of that and get some, to, to some more anti-establishment types that could show a better path forward. And it will be a type of populism. People think populism is a bad word, that it's just Donald Trump. Bernie Sanders' movement is populist. Jesse Jackson, when he ran for president in 1988, was a populist movement. There's different versions of populism. It's not necessarily bad. It could be a good thing. So what tactics from pro wrestling do you feel Trump utilized best in building momentum as a candidate? And which ones do you think more recently grew a little bit tired and uh, may have lost him some ground. Well, here's the thing. I, you know, Jim Ross wrote that piece, I believe it was in Sports Illustrated. It might have been for Fox News. I can't remember, but it was early in the administration. Of course, you've talked about this. I don't think Trump is like, oh, what would Vince McMahon do? or what would I don't think it's that. I think he intrinsically has those qualities that a wrestler has. How can I get heat? How can I pop the crowd? I think it's that kind of thing, and he knows it exists in wrestling, but it's just something he's always done. I mean, if you watch interviews with him in the 80s, um, in any setting, he talks like that. He acts like that. He behaves like that. Um, you know, as I've said once or twice here, but the thing I've hated most about this administration is how we talk about immigrants now. I don't like bullying defenseless poor people who are just trying to make a better life for themselves. I don't care if they're illegal or legal. I think that's just terrible. But... He got a lot of attention early on when the economy was good. There was no COVID times, and people were wanting to come here to find work by demonizing these poor people. And that's something you see in wrestling. You'd always the foreigner was bad. You know, it's just something in, in our human makeup. We like people close to us and people far away must be bad. Um, as far as good, I mean, at these rallies, whether you agree or disagree with his policies, I think most people aren't thinking about those things. As I said, I think those are his people. That's his crowd. And Hulk's got to pose. He's going to flex. He's going to tell them to take their vitamins and say their prayers. And that's what he's doing. And it works. It's great. Thank you. Um, so I'd like to get a, a, into Glenn Jacobs now. Um, I didn't realize until today that you... Um, wrote or, or co-wrote the book with um, with Glenn Jacobs. So I, I enjoyed the book. Um, thank you for, for writing that. Um, so when did Glenn Jacobs first get on your radar? Glenn and I have been friends for, I don't know, 10 years, 8 years, 11 years. I, have, I can't remember. I remember the first time I met him, but I'm just bad about remembering the year. And, you know, Glenn is a globally famous professional wrestler that I've watched for 20 years on my TV, including being Evil Dennis and, also, of course, the more important Demon Kane and Corporate Kane and all the rest. He's a wrestler who was a libertarian and very excited about these ideas. I'm a guy that works with this libertarian stuff all the time and love professional wrestling. So lo and behold, we cross paths eventually. Um, and I was part of the Ron Paul movement. You know, Glenn mentions in his book and has, has told me prior, the one time he got starstruck in his life was not meeting a wrestler. It was meeting Ron Paul. 
So think of the, you know, this man the size of Glenn Jacobs meeting Ron Paul, who's diminutive by comparison. That's when Glenn got nervous and was fanboying out like any of us would if we saw Glenn Jacobs at the airport. So um, Glenn and I have known each other for a long time. Um, you know, I've told some friends that I think we were friends for a year with me on the inside fanboying out but trying to be cool and not bringing up wrestling but wanting to ask so many questions. So we just stuck to politics. And after about a year, we were talking about wrestling all the time, and it wasn't so weird for me. For me, I'm sure it was fine for him the whole time because he's the superstar. But um, you know, we we share a lot of the same values, political values and beliefs. He's the mayor of Knox County now, and he's trying to show how smaller government, more freedom could be, you know, better for everyone. Um, he's just a good guy. I don't think anybody in the wrestling business, of which I'm not in, I'm in the political business and just happen to love wrestling, but we know to a man, everybody says nice and good and adoring things about Glenn Jacobs. Even people who disagree with him politically, like Nick Foley and Jim Cornette, um, have nothing good to say. And I can say as his friend of about a decade that that all holds up. So one of the ways that I sort of research wrestling um, for better or worse is that I have about 600 uh, Google alerts set up. So every day that, you know, something that mentions a wrestler, a former wrestler, you know, a, a turn of phrase, like it, it lands in my inbox. So one of the things I had been really excited about was it, um, it was a local university that was um, doing a series of um, webinars or Zoom meetings. And one of them was going to be being a mayor during COVID-19 um, with Glenn Jacobs. So, you know, I was like, I'm probably the only one from wrestling that knows about this. I signed up, but it got canceled. So I was a little bit disappointed about that. But one of the things sort of um, as somebody that's not a libertarian or not as familiar with it would be um, uh, Glenn, it seems on, on Twitter and, and otherwise kind of speaks out about sort of um restrictions um you know of people's movement let's say um you know if uh restaurants are closed or um there's uh suggestions or more formal orders to to wear masks how does sort of like how does that balance with you know the the science that we do see where when masks are worn that there's um a reduction in infection rates so here's the thing. You can't have liberty, which he and I and other libertarians stand for, without personal responsibility. They go hand in hand. And Glenn is the mayor and responsible from a leadership perspective of the people of Knox County. Obviously, this obvious, this awful pandemic has hit us, the COVID-19 coronavirus, that has taken people's lives. It has made people sick. It has disrupted their lives in all sorts of ways. But here we are so many months into it. I think what he's speaking out against, and I agree with him, you know, it was necessary at times to have different mandates, masks, and different things. Um, how you enforce those, I might disagree with other people. I don't want to see cops throwing people on the ground because they're not wearing a mask. But at the same time, there's competing interests, even when it comes to health. You know, we see suicide rates spike. We see severe depression going up. We saw studies, a study today that came out about that very subject. But even probably just as important is people's economic livelihood. We see these restaurants in California, which has a Democratic governor, which are doing the strict lockdowns. And they're basically saying our choice is to follow the law and go out of business or to open up and have some business and face the consequences. I'm not going to tell that private businessman or woman who's invested their life into this, well, you're bad and you're wrong. you got to stay shut down because Gavin Newsom says so. 
Um, I think Glenn is a libertarian, and you know my former boss Rand Paul has been saying this that you have to have personal risk assessment. I have a mother who is older. I have an 84 year old grandmother. Uh, I had somebody that's very sick in my family who passed um, not so long ago. And I was very worried about who I was around. I kept my mask on because I didn't want to hurt the people I loved. Um, not everybody has those concerns and shame on them for not being responsible. But at the same time, I am not mad at the bartenders and restaurant servers in Charleston, South Carolina, my friends who I've known for years, who are back at work with their mask on and serving people, even though that this, this coronavirus is very much with us. You have to weigh those two things. So Glenn Jacobs, being a libertarian, being an American who cares about his fellow men, says, hey, we have to think about all these competing interests. It's not as easy as saying there's a government dictate based on arbitrary random guidelines. If we all follow, follow them, this will go away, even though we've been doing that at this point and it has not gone away. So I think that's where he's coming from, and I think he's correct. Oh, thank you. I'm 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 enjoying learning, um, you know, as well. <laughs> I think obviously you know from from my Twitter, uh, you know, I have different political leanings, but I think sure. it's a good way of um, of sharing ideas in a in a way that's um, far outside of you know Fox or something yelling o over each other and and nobody uh, learning from each other. So well, all, all my so stuff comes from Zeb Coulter. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so my my final uh, question, sort of before handing it back to John, is that, you know, we've had wrestling, of course, become more prevalent in politics. We've had wrestlers, you know, attain, you know, more formal positions in politics. Where do you think the two are going? Will they remain along the same path where they are? Will they merge even closer? What does the future look like? I think if Dwayne Johnson isn't president, it's because Dwayne Johnson never wanted to be president. How in the hell would that not happen if he wanted to run and make it happen? <laughs> that broad coalition I was talking about earlier that could be anti-establishment and like a new coalition that's maybe not clearly left or right, who would be better to lead that than The Rock? I mean, come on. I know that's a that's a big answer to the question you're asking, but I don't know. Post-Trump, do people see politics more as the professional wrestling match than it is in so many instances? I don't think so, because most people who work in politics consider themselves elite and look down on what we like. Though there are some some open people. I think Chris Elizabeth at the Washington Post is an open wrestling fan or has been in the past. Um, I I think us wrestling fans will continue to watch this and see all the parallels, and a lot of people won't. <laughs> I'm not saying that's good or bad, but it happens to me every day where I'm like, you damn marks, and it's somebody believing some political thing that I know not is not going to happen, and they believe it is because they like the person. So I, I think those dynamics are going to continue, and I guess we can be entertained and amused by it along the way. The uh, Rock's appearance at the RNC is, is always entertaining, especially when the commentator didn't know what to make of him. And he asked him what he was really cooking and the Rock had to come up with, with something. My so, John, favorite, yeah, my, well, just real quick, my favorite with all that. Do you remember during the 2008 presidential campaign when McCain and Hillary and Barack Obama all appeared on Monday Night Raw? Oh, yes. Do you spell what the Barack is cooking? We spell what the Barack is cooking. He was the youngest, coolest guy. And, uh, like John McCain and Hillary are like, who are these people? Stone what? They don't know, but he kind of probably knew because he was younger and cool and had that great line. I love that. <laughs> so, John? Now, 
Jack, as far as Trump, and obviously, you know, he ends up losing this election to Joe Biden, but some may say he's a heel, some may say he's a face, but all good heels think they're faces. What do you think? Is he a face? Is he a heel? Where, where does Trump lie? It depends on your perspective. I have friends who think he's the ultimate face and for friends who think he's the ultimate heel and friends who thought he was the ultimate heel spent four years thinking that Russia stole the election because they had to have some sort of justification for the bad pain, emotional pain they were feeling. And now a lot of my Republican friends are going to be convinced that it was fraud that took this election, that Trump could somehow make up the gap of 8 million people in the popular vote, which is ridiculous. And that's how they're going to look at it. The facts don't matter. Reality doesn't matter. They like Trump or they hate Trump, but that's how they're going to think. So he's both to many people, depending on where they stand. And I think in, in true Trump fashion, he technically speaking, or in his own mind or his followers' mind, even when he loses, he won't technically lose. So he'll always be a winner, right? I mean, he's always kind of on the offense. He's not going to play defense. He won this thing. He got jobbed. That, that, that's exactly right. Look, if Ric Flair's being the chicken-ass heel in the, the ring and he loses the title, what does he do when he comes back? Does he be like, man, I, I got defeated. I feel bad. I got to be better. No, he talks about how he really won, even though he didn't. And how he's the man, and he's going. That's what Trump does. <laughs> that's that's exactly what he does. And that's you know a classic heel move. And we've talked about it on the show. He used to be a wrestling fan, so he used to watch wrestling. He probably studied it. He knows it. He's a WWE Hall of Famer. He definitely knows his kind of way around certain things and way way to speak, and certainly a way to say, "Hey, you know, I may have." Uh, well, actually, probably wouldn't say lost. You know. Uh, I may have got this thing stolen from me, but I never truly lost. It's like a great heel thing to do. That's ex that's exactly right. It kind of leads into what I said earlier that he's just he's not going to admit defeat. No heel in wrestling ever comes out and is like, "I'm going to learn from my mistake." No, that's what a face does. A heel is like, "Screw that! I didn't really lose. This was stolen from me. You suck." And lo and behold, here we are. And that'll make some people happy, and that'll piss off uh, a lot of the other fans. That's right. As far as you and wrestling and stuff, it was funny because when we were kind of setting this up, I was saying, oh, this night, this night, you're like, not Wednesdays. Is that because you're a big <laughs> NXT fan or is that because you're a big uh, AEW fan? So or both? Um, I, it's both. And my, my habit is I watch AEW first and I DVR NXT. And I, wa I watch four nights that night, or uh, four hours, excuse me. Um, look, AEW is a good product. It's not perfect. I have a lot of, I'm a big Jim Cornette fan. I think he's the best manager in the history of wrestling. Bobby Heenan second. I know it's controversial, but that's, that's where I'm at. I disagree with some of his criticisms. I very much disagree with some of his criticisms, but the, at the end of the day, this thing that I've loved so much my entire life being professional wrestling has a, in a, on a big league platform been presented by one man, at least for the last 20 years. The idea that in a big league way, Tony Khan is giving it, from a different way, a different product, that goes a long way with me. And when I say things that annoy me, like the guy flipping off the turnbuckle and 15 people standing there for 20 minutes waiting to catch them, that pisses me off too. I'm tired of it. But it it is not more important to me than seeing these new characters that wouldn't have been used in the same way on the main roster in WWE. I mean, they wouldn't have let MGF, MJF be MJF. Jungle Boy wouldn't have even been there. Who knows what Hangman Adam Page would have been. I, I'm not going to go through the entire roster, but we're seeing wrestling presented in a different way. And as somebody who loves this so much and sees in some of the mainstream WWE product people who I don't think love it as much as I do sometimes and what they're giving me, I really appreciate what Tony Khan and that crew is doing. And I love it every week. I look forward to it more than anything. 
precisely because it's different and it's pretty damn quality most of the time, in my opinion. What did you think of the Stinger? Sting making I, his debut. That was kind of surprising, but kind of cool. I absolutely loved it. And I loved how, you know, when Sting came into the ring, he kind of looked at Art Anderson for a second. You know, the legendary <laughs> war between Sting and the Horseman. He looked at Cody. There's the connection with his father. And then the other new up-and-comer weirdo with the face on his, you know, paint on his face, Darby Allen, who was awesome and I love and used to watch an Evolve in the Baltimore area, live shows all the time. That was wonderful. I mean, you're talking about giving that guy a rub. Um it's, I think it's cool that he's on TNT. Yes, he's 61 years old. I don't give a damn if he ever wrestles a match. He probably shouldn't. Maybe, I don't know, one or two baseball bat shots. I don't know. But what great branding and bringing more eyeballs to that. You know, Chris Jericho did that. I think some of the legends do that. And Sting might do it bigger and better than anybody. I thought that was a pretty good surprise. And if you're looking for name value, that's maybe the one thing that they might be lacking. I know they got Arn and Tully and stuff, but as far as just that huge name, you know, kind of jumping ship yeah. or that huge name that a lot, you know, a lot of people are familiar with, it's like Sting, it checks all those boxes. He absolutely does in the connection with TNT. And look, uh, you know, a lot of the people there have not been shy. They're being AEW about wanting to reach the laps fan. I don't know to what degree they've done that yet. I do feel sometimes like there's less wrestling fans than there were before and probably, but does that always have to be true? And how do you grow that? And, you know, in the age of social media, and there's a gazillion different companies. I love the NWA. I love MLW. I've been watching Ring of Honor more than ever with the pure tournament. Um, there's so much to consume. How does this company, you know, grow and be big and make wrestling bigger? And I think they're poised to possibly do it. Nothing's guaranteed, but Sting could be a game changer. We'll see. I hope so. I mean, the initial rating of the first week was very good and very promising and way up. I mean, they I think it might have been the biggest margin of victory they've had in a long time. It was pretty big. I think it was 913 to 913. Right. Yeah, it's like 650. So I was like, wow, like that obviously got people changing the channel, which is, you know, kind of the uh, old school Monday Night uh, Raw Monday Nitro thing. But it, that must have been a, a cool thing to for a lot of fans to kind of like, oh, flip around like, wait, what the hell is this? Sting. Whoa, he's back. You know, pretty damn cool. Um, you, you can't really surprise fans too much nowadays. So that's pretty cool when you can. Yeah, absolutely. And let's not shortchange NXT because it's my favorite after AEW and it's not far and away. It's it's pretty close just because it's so quality. I love what Triple H does with that. I think we would all have to admit it's very different than when you see on Raw and SmackDown. And look, I love what they're doing on Roman with Roman Reigns on SmackDown. There's things I like the Hurt business a lot. I think any variation of the horseman you're going to do is fine with me. <laughs> it's always going to work. Evolution, Fortune, I don't care. It's always going to work. So I like those guys. But by and large, NXT is way more exciting and more excited to watch it and to see what's going to happen next week on a week-to-week -week basis than the main roster shows. And I don't say that with any pleasure. I hope that changes. But I think for a lot of fans, Wednesday night is now wrestling night. It is kind of cool to get that, you know, not Monday Night War, but really, you know, the war going again, Wednesday Night War. I know it's with a much smaller audience, Raw and Nitro were doing, you know, maybe 10 times the number. It was just crazy. But given what wrestling is and maybe it's more niche, Nowadays, I think it's pretty cool to have you know a competitive show and have a legitimate number two because we haven't had that in so long. It, absolutely, it's 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 rejuvenated my fandom, if you will. Um, I got to be at the first show in DC, the first Dynamite, which was 
I got to tell you, man, when I saw Tony Schiavone standing up there, remember I'm a Southern kid and Jim Crockett promotions and WCW and Flair, Tony Schiavone and David Crockett and all that, seeing him standing up there kicking off that show, that kind of got to me a little bit. I, I, it, it was really touching. And it was awesome uh, last week when he was like, it's Sting. Because I, you know, I used to love WCW. And somebody on Twitter put a, a cool video together of all the times Tony said it. I was like, wow, this is awesome. Definitely brought me back. Yeah, I stood up out of the chair when he said it's Sting. It was just dying laughing. <laughs> of course, he tweets it out with a million T's and I's and N's. Yep. It was pretty great. Because, you know, you go back to like Uncensored 97. We hadn't seen Sting in a while. The NWO just took care of business. All of a sudden, it's Sting. And he, you know, he propels down from the from the rafters. So that kind of sent me back. I was, wow, that was awesome. Yeah, I, de- I definitely popped. It was something to behold. What did you think about War Games? I know uh, there were some injuries coming out of it, but did you get a chance to finish it? I would have never said there's a better heel in wrestling. Yes, I did finish. I would never said there's a better heel in wrestling than MJF, but Pat McAfee is part of that conversation. How awesome is he? He is the biggest douchebag. He's the guy hmm. in a sports bar you don't want to be anywhere near, sitting near his table or standing next to the bar. I love him. And him just being so sophomoric, like, we rule and you suck. You audience suck. It sounds stupid when I say it, but when he does it, it works. And he's just an a-hole. And I thought war, the War Games match with Undisputed Air and him, all of that was great. I'm sure you saw on his podcast today, he was selling the injury mm-hmm. by wearing a neck brace, which yep. I absolutely love. And I, you know, had nothing to good, but good things to say about him. Undisputed error. Awesome. Once again, any iteration of the horsemen, they're not exactly the same, but it's four guys who kick ass in the prime of their careers. And you know what I'm getting at. And of course, Pat McAfee saying we're the best four man team <laughs> in wrestling, hmm. which is directed at undisputed error, but also has horsemen connotations. I thought the war games match was great. I like the three way with, with Damian priest and Gargano and, Leon Ruff. I thought there was a lot of good stuff on that show. NXT doesn't let me down. Their shows I like better than others. The same is true of AEW. But I can't say with their pay-per-views and their day, the week-to-week shows, they never do anything that makes me not want to watch them or not care. I care about what happens on both of those shows. And I, I, I got to be honest, on Friday nights I'm out and sometimes I'll DVR SmackDown. And unless somebody tells me to watch a specific match or something, I don't watch it most of the time. I just kind of read the rundown. And thinking about me 10, 15, 20 years ago, that would not have been remotely the case. I would have had to see those shows to feel like I was whole. I usually like any Roman Reigns segment. I feel like he's doing a great job with that gimmick and that angle, finally turning heel. So if anything, if you're going to watch anything on SmackDown, it would definitely need something Reigns. And even Sasha Banks has been great lately. So uh, anything with those two, I feel like those are the two stars that they definitely have on that show. I, I agree. And, you know, uh, WWE makes it easy with their YouTube videos. You can go watch the three or four yes. minute clip. And that's what I needed to see. And I got it. And I don't have to watch three hours of things that are poorly written or shouldn't have been written in the first place and scripts handed to people and so on and so on. And Lavi is a YouTube specialist. He is our, our market research YouTube guy. So he knows that all too well about um, the you know subscribers and the videos and, and what does well and what doesn't. Lavi, you're kind of the expert on that. Yeah, so the, um, the WWE one is really interesting when you sort of take the videos and you do 
by most popular, it actually takes you a little while to find a match. It's usually an appealing um, angle um, or a something about a storyline that appeals like 10 best romantic moments in WWE or Randy Orton turns on uh, Triple H. And um, the first matches that you start seeing are actually great Kali matches just because of um, his... Uh, celebrity and um the interest in the indian market of of following his career sure you know and that kind of takes us back to the po politics wrestling uh, um conversation so glenn jacobs would always say to me um people remember moments or angles far more than they remember matches so like kane and daniel bryan saying yes no yes no all that uh ripping the door off of the cage at the beginning of kane's career People generally remember that more than they do any of his specific matches. Mick Foley coming off the top of the cage at the hands of The Undertaker. In politics, people remember Trump coming down the elevator. They remember Howard Dean's scream from 2004. We wrestling fans, diehards, we like, we like the angles, but we also like the matches. We like Steamboat and Savage from WrestleMania 3, things like that. That's In politics, us political nerds, we like the policy. Well, who got this done? Who passed this bill? That's not what most people care about on both sides. That larger wrestling base that loved the Ultimate Warrior, and whole, it wasn't about the matches. It was about the moments and the angles. The same in politics. These big, big things. Marco Rubio drinking water on some speech. That's what people remember. And that's why WWE, I bet, prior, prioritizes that on their YouTube. It's what goes over more than specifics. You know what's kind of surprising with WWE now is The Mandalorian is one of the most popular shows, if not the most popular streaming show of all time. I mean, it's up there. I was looking at the numbers, and it was just crazy how great it does. They haven't really promoted Sasha Banks' appearance, and she's a recurring character on the show. That is surprising, and that is something that never happened before with WWE. I mean, they're really kind of making it all about the brand and not about the individual stars. But imagine even when Steve Austin was on, like, Walker, Texas Ranger. That was, like, plugged three times an episode so it's weird that she's on the most popular streaming service and they're not plugging it do you that find is, that odd that is very weird now that you're interested because vince is all over those crossovers with mainstream culture like you said there's nothing more popular than the mandalorian she's on it they haven't mentioned i wonder if that's some of the rumors of heat we heard before but even so it's one of their superstars and wwe brand like yeah i don't get that I think it's partly sort of like a control issue. They like to reach out into other industries sort of for respect. And um, even when, when times were pretty low 25 years ago, or even a little bit more coming off like storied scandals and other scandals, when there'd be a celebrity softball game and like Kevin Nash participate, they'd have like several minutes of clips, even though no one else was really aware of this type of event. Um, or when the Bushwhackers went to the White House Easter egg hunt, um, they'd put that on. But when it comes to the point where one of their stars is sort of breaking through, I think there's that bad taste in their mouth still like of the rock leaving them sort of, you know, it's coming off, uh, a high point of the company where the company no longer has control. But it's really interesting with um, the second, uh, Vince's second now, who came from the world of like talent management, you know, how those two things might be integrated more into it, where you might start seeing contracts that sort of stretch beyond wrestling and maybe even the WWE um, takes control sort of, of being the, the agency of record. I, th I think that's right, and that's one of the things I like about AEW is they let them do other things. Uh, you know, it's it's weird. 
they can't expect to have huge superstars. And we've heard people say that, you know, WWE is not going to have superstars at the Cena level because it's more about the WWE brand. But it's weird to expect to want to build these stars, which ultimately draw more than the WWE brand. Little kids wanted to see John Cena. Building these stars who, if they're going to get big, might move on to other things. I mean, it would be as silly as Billy Corrigan saying, I'm so pissed off Ricky Starks left or that Thunder Rosa's on AEW TV or that Eddie Kingston's over there. No, he knows that he has a quality product, but part of it is it's a platform that people are going to move up eventually if they're doing their job and putting on a good program. WWE is like that. Yes, they're the biggest thing in wrestling, but they're also in the entertainment business. It's in their name. And if people want to go higher in entertainment, it might be beyond wrestling. So you see what I'm getting at. I think it's kind of selfish and unreasonable to have that attitude and not promote somebody like a Sasha Banks out of fear that they might be the next Rock or John Cena or Batista. I just thought that was so weird. Like, wow, the Mandalorian is so popular. You got to promote it. I don't care. You know, she only had a few speaking parts of me, but it's such a big role and such a big show. Like, wow, that's just uh, very weird, very undubbed like, but I guess they're controlling the, uh, the narrative of, of the guys and even new day. They're not promoting that. They're in this big video game and they're on like the front cover and they're all over the place on these video games and they're not promoting it. And I think Xavier Woods is now the host of a, of a show on, on the game show uh, on G4. So it's like, wow, like, man, they really are not letting these guys loose. Maybe it's old school mentality too. Remember Hulk Hogan had to get away from the WWF because Vince senior didn't want him to do Rocky. Well, guess what helped kickstart Hulkamania? It was Thunderlips, you know? Mm -hmm. So yep. sometimes they don't, you know, you wouldn't have the, the Hulkamania in the eighties WWF without him being in that movie and Mr. T showing up at WrestleMania and all the rest. So um, yeah, I don't get it. Maybe it's just some old school thinking as well. Speaking of old school, I know your two favorite wrestlers of all time, in all seriousness, is Rocky King and Lasertron, right? Absolutely. You can't beat Rocky King and Lasertron. Maybe throw in Denny Brown and our old friend George South, and that's that's it. That could be the new Four Horsemen as far as I'm concerned. So being uh, a northerner, I sort of have my own equivalent, which is, of course, Barry Horowitz. I was a there huge, you go. <laughs> huge Barry Horowitz fan, and, um, you know, as a – Jewish kid growing up, there weren't so many identifiable Jewish wrestlers. And, um, you know, coincidentally, when I first heard uh, Kane's real name, Glenn Jacobs, I was very hopeful that he was Jewish. <laughs> well, did, did, did you read the part about Barry Horowitz in his book? I, I don't know how I could have possibly missed that, so, but I did. You know what? Sometimes I get confused by what he put in that book and things he told me, but I'm pretty sure it's in the book. He he once said that Al Snow told him, I believe it was Al Snow, that the most powerful man in professional wrestling was Barry Horowitz. And he's like, what in the blue hell are you talking about? He said, well, you know, we're the stars. You're a star. And, you know, you have to beat people and squash people. He's like, what if what if Barry Horowitz has got up and walked away after you did that? You'd be screwed, right? He's like, yeah. He's like, well, it takes people like that, what they used to call carpenters or, or whatever, to make the stars look good and to do that and to, to we trust them to do that. And that was sort of the one of the wrestling lessons he was receiving from other people at the time. But Barry Horowitz was the specific example. That um, when they officially acknowledged his win against Skip, they had a T-shirt already up the next week, and that was like the first wrestling T-shirt I ever bought. And I, <laughs> I think. I think our closest version to that in the South would be the Mulkey Brothers and Mulkey Mania. I think a lot of people <laughs> remember that. Yes. And <laughs> you and do you remember who they beat under the masks? The, they, the, the Galaxians? What, who, yeah. who, who was that? 
George South and the Italian Stallion. That's right. That's right. The, and they build up the Galaxians. Was it the Galaxians? Yeah, it was the Galaxians coming in, and then the Mulkies did quick work of them. The match I remember as a kid most from that era is Rock and Roll Express beating the Russians when they first came in. More than any other match. That's just always stuck with me. Rock and Roll were awesome. So over. Such a great team. My favorite tag team to this day. I actually might. Have, I mean, I love the Steiner Brothers, but I may have to go Midnight Express. Well, that's that's the thing. Everybody, look, you like rock and roll. You like Midnight Express, the Road mm -hmm. Warriors, Steiners. Of course, the Four Horsemen and Flair Flair, my favorite thing ever in wrestling. But I really do feel like Ricky and Robert. It, God, if anybody hears this, it's gonna drive me crazy. When when Jim Cornette criticizes the Young Bucks, who also like for their size and their youthful look. That's exactly what everybody said about Ricky and Robert. Didn't Bill Watts say you're going to sell for these little guys? Wasn't that the dictate in the locker room in Mid-South? And, you know, they, everybody says Ricky Morton looked like a 12-year-old. The reason I like them, they did look like kids, literal baby faces. They were smaller. But they did, you know, the double drop kick and some of the moves they did, I think, was closer to what, you know, Shawn Michaels and Motor City Machine Guns and people would do in the future with tag team wrestling. I think they're sort of that transitional team that they don't get enough credit for. People love to love the heels. They like Arn and Tully or Arn and Ole, um, you know, Midnight Express. But uh, Rock and Roll Express, everybody thinks they're great and loves them, but nobody puts them at the top. And I think they deserve to be in that conversation more than they are. Totally agree. Great, great team. Unbelievable. And I love, you mentioned Arn, uh, well, the Horsemen, really, but I, I loved Arn and Tully. I think that's one of the best tag teams ever, too. Just unbelievable. Every facet, they, they knew how to make the other team look Way, you know, that much better and they knew how to get themselves over to an awesome team right and that's why ftr is the best team around today because they're copying that I, you know Aerosmith mm -hmm. are great because they were copying mick and keith the, the rolling stones like there's nothing wrong with that there's there could be new generations of old things so yeah that that style is wonderful and it's good to see people like ftr continuing the tradition so I loved Arn and Tully in WCW, but their short run as the Brainbusters with Bobby Heenan. Yeah. I just love all of those matches. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, there's nothing, but I love, how cool is it to see Arn Anderson on TV and Tully Blanchard on TV on your regular wrestling show um, these days? I, abs I absolutely love it. I guess I'm in that 40-ish uh, demographic, over 40, that you know grew up on that, and that's really hitting me in the right place. I'm just waiting for Arn to turn on uh, Rhodes. I mean, they're really, you know, they're really establishing them so well. And they've been so patient and, and not having turned, you know, the, the obvious angle. He could. And he took that big bump from Team Taz this week, which kind of surprised me. Um, those guys need to be careful. I want to see him on TV more often and not heard. <laughs> but, but that could happen. There's so much kind of correlation, like we've, we've talked about, between wrestling and politics and politics and wrestling. It just goes back and forth and back and forth. And you're kind of that perfect guy to talk about both. I mean, you're a big wrestling fan, obviously, in the political world, in the wrestling world, love politics. I mean, you're like the, the perfect mix there. Uh, I feel like, you know, you are the absolute perfect guest for this show. Well, I appreciate you saying that. And yeah, I never tire of talking about either. I get tired of politics a lot. And boy, I'm glad wrestling's there to comfort me. <laughs> yeah it's one of those things it's like man what can we get away from politics and we to get away from this and then you know you go to wrestling and it's like all right enough wrestling let's go back to politics like you go back and forth and it seems like a lot of the fans if you look at the the ratings it seems like a lot of fans are doing that as well i i think that's exactly right and yeah if, if wrestling i get my feelings hurt when wrestling's not good and what i mean by that is i mean 
How many of us fans love this stuff so much? We think about it all the time. We're consumed with it. It's just who we are. It's weird. A lot of people don't understand it. When they're not caring as much as we are, and you feel that sometimes, I, I don't like it. It makes me angry. So um, maybe that's true of politics, too. I don't know. But I, I just expect most of them not to be serious about it, talking about people in politics. So, Now, Lava, do you have any final questions for Jack? So, Rith... AEW's emergence, WWE sort of having its its place in the world. Is there a room for a big third brand? I mean, anything's possible. I love, you know, I, I like the Moxley Kenny Omega match a lot, but it's overshadowed by the Impact Association. I would love to see them work with Impact, Ring of Honor, NWA, New Japan, AAA. Um, and they're doing a little bit of that already. I think the idea of a territory system where, you know, like, I'm not seeing Kip Sabian do much on my TV and AEW right now, but maybe he might be cooler in an MLW setting. Um, you, you see what I'm getting at? And boy, would I love to see Alexander Hamilstone and Chris Cage have a match. Um, could we get to something like that? If any of I could do it, Tony Khan seems open to it. And being a fan, probably even more hardcore than the three of us combined, might want to do that. And it seems like it makes sense. What does their association with Impact, how, that, how can that in any way hurt AEW? It might not help it, but how in any way could it hurt it? It helps impact. But you see what I'm getting at. Why not do that across the board? The two big companies, at least in the United States, and I would argue globally, New Japan would be in that conversation, I guess, globally, or WWE and AEW. It just is what it is. It was always fun when WCW was sort of open to the other worlds of wrestling, sort of never overtaking anything, but sort of like peeking their way in, whether it was a New Japan or a little bit of Smoky Mountain, that you you had that association and it felt like like a broader world, whereas the WWF was always more insular. And like if you weren't part of us, then you weren't anything. And when they did bring in other promotions, it was sort of like only need-based and then like they right. were gone and you never heard about it again. Yes, no, I think that's exactly right. And, you know, AEW having time limits and different things that you haven't seen in wrestling for years because, like I said earlier, WWE has been the only game in town to give us this thing we love that you just kind of had to take it. So I, I think the 913,000 people who are excited about Sting and like the Kenny Omega match with John Moxley also probably share a lot of the same sentiments I've expressed here about having an alternative on a big league platform. So as far as plugs and everything, I guess, Jack, you should go first and give everybody all your social media plugs, where they can find you, and what you're up to. Right now, I'm primarily writing at the Washington Examiner. You can find me at the American Conservative and Spectator USA. My Twitter handle is JackHunter74. Um, and yeah, you'll find all my work on my social media and out and about. I appreciate being with you guys today. I've really enjoyed this conversation talking about politics and wrestling and most importantly lasertron <laughs> awesome stuff and lavi before we kind of close it out please give your plugs as well yes um just uh, quickly what a, what a pleasure to connect in this way jack uh, john appreciate you know getting uh getting together again and, and being able to do this so if you want to jump in more and learn about uh, Trump mania. You could go to any Amazon platform and get Trump mania, Vince McMahon, WWE and the making of America's 45th president 2020 election special edition. If you're already feeling nostalgic and uh, follow me on Twitter, I'm on there way too much. L A V I E M A R G. 
And of course, for myself, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Two Man Power Trip. And my website is tmptempire.com. I'd like to thank everybody for joining us this week on Trump Mania. Usually say, see you next week, folks, but we don't know. We thought the show was ending, but no, the, the fans called for it. They wanted more content. They wanted Jack. They want more interviews. So we may not be done. So it possibly, possibly see you next week. But thank you, everybody, of course, for joining us here on Trump Mania. Thanks to Lobby. Thanks to Jack. And we will see you around, folks. Money, 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 money. money.